0: Hello and welcome to Sea Control Podcast. I'm Nathan Miller. Today, Walker speaks with Commander Michael Knickerbocker about the threat of unmanned surface vessels, what the U.S. Navy should do about them, and how the U.S. Navy should direct its own USV programs. Marie Williams edited and produced this episode. Here at SimSec, we aim to further international maritime peace and security through an exchange of ideas and the rigor of critical thought and writing. If you haven't already, please check out SimSec.org for new articles on the most important maritime topics. If you would like to contribute to the discussion, check out the Write for SimSec tab to learn how you can submit articles for publication. Finally, I want to highly recommend our partners in the SimSec podcast network, the Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And on that note, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for
1: International
0: Maritime.
1: The welcome aboard the Sea Control Podcast from the Center for International Maritime Security. I'm your host, Walker Mills, and my guest today is Commander Michael Knickerbocker, a surface warfare officer in the U.S. Navy. We're going to discuss the essay he recently wrote for War on the Rocks, written in black and red, asymmetric threats, and affordable unmanned vessels. Michael, welcome aboard. Can you start by telling the listeners a bit more about your background.
0: Glad to be here, Walker. Uh, So I am a surface warfare officer. Previously spent time in 5th, 6th, 7th Fleet, various arraignment of mostly destroyers, and then was on the uh, aircraft carrier, Gerald R. Ford. Uh, I also uh, served at the Carrier Strike Group 12 staff and was a battle watch captain at Fleet Forces Command. So a lot of time as a operational planner uh, and tactical trainer. And had experience, you know, dealing with high-speed maneuvering surface targets uh, and training cruiser weapons operators and remote optical sight weapon operators on how to engage those targets. So it's kind of always fed into me, you know, of what the smaller quicker threats are and how they're, they're much harder to get after than some of the bigger stuff that uh, flies up in the air. It's a little easier to engage those targets. So that got me, always gave me reason for pause. And so it was what kind of came to mind as I decided to start writing more.
1: We're excited to have you on board. And as a reminder to the listeners, all the opinions here are solely our own and not reflective of any of the institutions uh, with which we might otherwise be associated with. Getting started, I was really excited to see your uh, your essay in War on the Rocks on on USVs, uh, unmanned surface vessels, because um, I think you know we're we're seeing them all over the news, and maybe you could start us off and just kind of talk a little bit about what we've been seeing in uh, in Ukraine and the Black Sea and and now in in the Red Sea as well, and, and and perhaps that's what kind of inspired your your writing.
0: So, like many in the American Armed Forces, I paid special attention to. The Ukraine conflict, because of the fact that they're fighting a near peer competitor in Russia. And what has been very clear from early on was their use of cheap, mass produced commercial drones in order to provide uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, ISR, or third party over the horizon targeting. And they have been able to use those cheaper platforms to effectively engage the russian forces both at land and at sea and a lot of those videos have been posted online throughout the last couple of years and we've been able to see the effective employment of them and then when you look at their naval battle they have no navy yet have managed to kind of force back the russian fleet which still poses a danger but also has been relegated to a little bit of what they call a fleet in being. Uh, you could almost call them a paper tiger, but they've had small strikes. So uh, there was the Russian capital ship that was lost a little over a year and a half ago, uh, which they utilize unmanned aerial systems to provide targeting for coastal defense missile batteries. Then As we've kind of seen them slowly escalate and evolve their uh, unmanned surface vehicles that are mostly one-way kamikaze drones, it all culminated in October 29th when they launched a multi-pronged attack uh, at vessels at anchor and alongside a pier over in the Crimean Peninsula at uh, Sevastopol. So that caught a lot of people's attention – that they were able to do this relatively large scale uh dynamic attack and although the damage was minimal to the forces afloat it at least uh allowed them to show that we can reach out and touch you with relatively cheap armaments and the same can be said of the houthis which you know have largely used suicide unmanned aerial drones Uh, and older, not as sophisticated cruise missiles to hold at risk forces operating in the Red Sea to include merchant uh, shipping. And then about earlier this week, we saw that they had an explosive-laden unmanned boat that they sent out towards merchant vessel. That was the first time they had used that tactic uh, towards civilian merchants, but they actually struck and severely damaged a... Saudi Arabian frigate in 2017 outside of a Yemeni port city that was approximately 30 kilometers uh, off the coast. So the tactic wasn't really new for the Houthis. It was just employed in a different manner at a different target set, which I mean, depending what you see is 90 to 95% of global shipping has now been rerouted around the Horn of Africa, adding about 21 days to the transit than if they go through the Red Sea route, which has potential economic uh, impacts and, again, is more of an embarrassment for uh, the First World Forces, uh, NATO, the U.S., and our other partner nations. Uh,
1: A note to the listeners here. Um, we're recording this in early January. So it it the Red Sea is kind of an evolving uh, situation. Things may change a little bit um by the time we get to publish this podcast. But um certainly interesting things and I, I think these USVs have really kind of caught the the imagination, certainly of military and naval practitioners, but even more of the general public. One example, there is a great podcast I was listening to a couple of months ago by the uh the red line. Um they brought a couple of experts on to talk about. USVs, uh, but I'm kind of interested in in the point that you made, Michael, that this isn't necessarily something new. I, I think it's new to our kind of attention, but if these aren't necessarily new weapons, is what, what's kind of the history behind this this these kind of tactics and this these type of weapons?
0: So, uh, in the article, I actually pointed out the fact that we used unmanned boats laden with explosives with a long stick that connected to a detonator back in the American civil war, which was where I kind of stopped for the article. But as I had done my research, the reality is, you know, I think we've all heard of the Greek fire ship and in 415 and 450 BC, there's actual documentation of these empty wooden boats that were loaded with uh, flammable materials and just set ablaze and then pushed out of a harbor, across a river, or onto the open sea, trying to strike at Greek navies uh, and even uh, at the Byzantine navy uh, back 415 to 450 BC. So none of this is that new. The concept of a cheap asset that can inflict damage to a more expensive asset of a superior enemy goes almost 2,500 years uh, into the past. And like I said, with the Houthis, they've actually used the suicide unmanned surface vessel with great effect late as 2017. But after not using it again for a while, now it comes again and it recaptures
1: our attention. They seem both high-tech and low-tech, but I would imagine that, uh, unlike the uh, the small uh, UAS and first FPV, first-person view um, drones that we're seeing in, in Ukraine and other places that are often start as, as commercial products and then they're kind of weaponized, that a lot of these USVs would have to be scratch-built because there's not a huge you – know, you can't go to Walmart and buy a uh, a remote-control Zodiac or something like that. Is that the case? And maybe that's kind of slowed – some of the uh, uh, the development, or, or that's why that they're a little seem like they're a little bit later to the scene than some of these small um, airborne uh, UAS that we see.
0: I mean, you're you're exactly right because, like you said, you can't go out and buy a Zodiac size remote control boat, and you know. You're not going to have anything with the sort of range. We've definitely seen the commercial sector take more to the unmanned aerial systems than surface vessels, but the ability to remotely steer or, uh, you know, drive a boat just loaded with explosives isn't a new concept. I mean, that's one of the the threats that the Iranians have uh, posed uh, in the Gulf uh, for many, many years, Um, and it's something that that was how the coal was struck in uh, 2000. So we've personally seen this be able to be employed. The ability to take a commercial boat. Now, with a UAS, you can get something for probably around $250 or more, just ball parking, put a small amount of explosives on it, and fly it out at something. Now, when you're trying to do this from a from a standpoint of taking a commercial boat, obviously – it's a lot more expensive. You're probably talking, you know, anywhere in the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands for the base platform and then equipping it to be able to uh, be remotely piloted or just setting it adrift. And I think that's what we've seen in Ukraine was some of the early start stuff was modifying commercially available equipment, but then very quickly it turned to, building purpose-built, albeit quickly, uh, systems uh, that I think the one fact uh, number I saw was that's costing them roughly uh, $200,000 to build, which when you consider the cost of a capital warship, you know, an Aegis destroyer is over $2 billion, uh it's a great ROI for them, even if they're spending in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per platform.
1: How much of a threat to... The U.S. Navy are are these types of systems, right? I mean, obviously, we're aware of the the USS Cole attack in in 2001, but I would think, you know, perhaps this is the type of technology where if you're if you've got kind of your defenses up, it would be harder for a a USV to strike the ship. I mean, how how worried is the Navy, and and should the Navy be about uh, attacks like this in the future?
0: I can't speak for Big Navy, but the warning I would give is, can we easily engage these with 5-inch guns, uh, 25-millimeter, or even uh, 20-millimeter SeaWiz? Absolutely. And with remote optically sighted weapons, we can easily uh, defeat these. However, the problem is that I don't have to, from an adversarial standpoint, defeat... Uh, those remote operated uh, weapons what i have to do is overwhelm them so at the end of the day i just have to send one more usv laden with explosives than a ship can engage in order to inflict damage at the waterline now again with the usvs it's going to come down to the balance they have to figure out is the explosive payload the range and the accuracy uh, because of their available resources, but at the same time, from a naval ship standpoint, is figuring out what you're engaging it with and at what ranges and I mean we've seen in the Red Sea uh shooting down unsophisticated adversarial weapons with uh two million dollar standard missiles, which we only have so many v l s cells we only have so many cans of twenty five millimeter and so many rounds of the appropriate fuse type for a five inch gun. So if they can keep sending these in waves, or draw our attention in one side and then bring an attack from another side where we don't have the depth of fire, then it is possible for them to inflict one large hole, which is going to, you know, probably not sink the ship, but definitely take it out of the fight or give it something else to think about. And in our our day of where we see the strains on the fleet with our ship count and with our ability to repair and maintenance, I mean, the damage taken to Fitzgerald and McCain uh, took more than two years for both of those ships to return to the fleet.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And I would think, you know, not just, you know, overwhelming the, the defenses, but, you know, a, a smart adversary could also look at for times when ships are particularly – vulnerable during, you know, uh, narrow or, or straight transits or or like the USS Cole when they're in a the harbor, or they're in port, you know, and a clever adversary could get their uh, USVs close, you know, with within the engagement range of defensive weapons um, before the ship's able to use those or, or perhaps when they're in those types of environments, they don't kind of have all the same uh, access to all the same defensive measures. And certainly the point on the kind of, uh, um, uh, cost, uh, ratio of different, uh, weapons has come up before. I think, uh, there was some commentary that I saw surrounding the, um, the, the destroyers in the Red Sea that were, you know, knocking down all these, uh, Houthi missiles and drones and, you know, without knowing exactly what, uh, how they were doing that or, uh, how or what type of weapons the Houthis were sending. One could imagine that they're, you know, shooting very expensive uh, standard missiles at, at not, particularly lethal threats. And so even though they're knocking them down they're you know, we're not necessarily coming out on the right side of that uh, cost benefit.
0: And then the other thing you have to account for is where's the nearest facility to reload and what's the inventory in theater. And so, you know, when you look at going from, say, the Houthis and then a first line Navy like the PRC or Russia, then employing these similar tactics, then it becomes, well, as they trite our, our munitions, then they're able to send in the higher tech missiles that then will have a harder time to defeat, or we may be uh, sitting on empty magazines at that point. And I think that's where the real thing comes into and I know transitioning the more talking about the overall Navy USV. And I thought uh, Kyle Craig hit this on the head with talking about every ship a SAG and using unmanned surface vessels as an adjunct magazine. But where I was seeing in the article was for us to be able to not take large Unmanned surface vessels, or medium, but extra small, and taking something that's six to seven feet, or at least less than ten feet in length, that we can put four to six of these on, say, a flight one or flight two Arleigh Burke destroyer, one without a hangar, where they can dump them off the fantail and then have additional chaff rounds that can be fired, or you know something that can actually. Physically intercept an inbound explosive laden USV or manned boat in order to enhance the survivability of, of the capital ship. And I think that we are heading in a good direction with the overall unmanned surface vessel programs within the Navy. Um, we've hit a bunch of milestones with what we've seen from Unmanned Surface Squadron 1 and the transit across the Pacific. And you know starting to to show that capability in Australia and Japan, respectively, but my issue was those are thirty five to a hundred plus million dollars per unit, and so you know when we're talking like Kyle's point of having these large unmanned surface vessels that can be an adjunct magazine for additional vLS cells or electronic warfare capabilities, yes, that's great. But at the same time, when are we actually going to get to maturity on that? Whereas using a, a simpler approach with a much smaller vessel and strapping something like a super Arbok launcher, which is our chaff launcher, and putting chaff on these and and allowing them to operate in concert with ships as kind of a generation one, and then eventually getting it to have electronic warfare capabilities where it's integrated with the shipboard system and can act autonomously or as a remote operated soft kill magazine Uh, because soft kill has still been proven as effective even against a lot of modern uh, missiles and it's significantly cheaper than the hard kill option. And with all the talk of flat or shrinking budgets, I just think that in the near term, We can probably get to scale on a simplified concept to employ cheaper but just as effective measures such as soft kill and then eventually build up from there as we come to maturity on the LUSVs and and the MUSVs and other potential variants that will come from there.
1: Couple of points there. Uh yep. Yeah, so we're definitely aware of the uh Kyle Kredge uh article and we'll make sure that we put that in the uh in the notes below the show. We'll share the link for that. And that's actually one of the first things that I wrote about back as a lieutenant for Simsec was about using uh unmanned ships as as pickets. But Kyle really kind of breaks it down uh and does some of the math in, in, in his article. You beat me to it a little bit, but yeah, I wanted to kind of ask what you thought about the current efforts around uh, the U.S. Navy's USVs. I mean, we know uh, the listeners are probably familiar with with the kind of ghost ship that was the um offshore patrol vessel that was doing some unmanned transits. There's the Orca, extra large USV that that we've seen, the Sea uh, Hunter, kind of it was a, a trimaran, I think, and that all seemed kind of to me as an outsider. Very expensive, and have a as of yet unclear purpose. And and maybe there are folks that know exactly what they're going to do, um, and they just don't talk about them. But it seems like we're treading cautiously. And 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 perhaps you think there's a faster approach or a better approach to go for smaller stuff. Because then on the other end we see the um the task force. I think it's Task Force Fifty Nine. Uh, in the Arabian Gulf is is playing with different types of technology like uh, sail drones and, and and things like that. So, just wondering what you're kind of if you think we're moving in the right direction, but perhaps not fast enough, or we need to kind of pivot and go a, a different direction. So, I do think that
0: we're showing steady progress. My one personal quarrel with a lot of this is we're trying to build things at the size of the, the sea hunter and, and ranger that, you know, we haven't really proven our ability to do this at any size of vessel yet at the level we want. And I am very much a fan of build something small and show that you can do it and then make it a little bigger rinse and repeat because Showing that you can do something on a six-foot vessel, you can't then just go and make a 60-foot vessel and have it with the same design approach and have it work the exact way that the smaller one did. That's just not how much technology works. Like being able to prove it in, in one small component and then scaling it out to a much larger size just doesn't always work. And we see a lot of the programs that have attempted to take something small and then get aggressive with it and build something smaller. So ORCA was just delivered by Boeing. But prior to that, uh, the other large unmanned underwater vessel, the Snakehead program, was terminated with hundreds of millions of dollars invested uh, into the research and design. But it was done in a way to essentially hook onto submarines in the way the SEAL delivery vehicle did and then it's like, well, we don't have enough submarines to really support the, the scale in order to make it cost effective. And I mean, we see that with trying to get super advanced with technology before the technology is mature. You look at aspects of the littoral combat ship program or the Zumwalt class destroyer where the technology didn't mature as fast as we wanted, but we we were invested in it. And then we wind up having to divest to invest in other programs. And so I feel that a better approach is to take something that is smaller, cheaper to build, and attritable, and then go through the testing with that and then take it up another level, ultimately getting to full size, whatever that may be classified as, whether it's 30 meters, 50 meters, or even the size of a destroyer. Because we showed we could put an autonomous uh, autopilot system on a EPF, uh, which is our high-speed merchant marine expeditionary cargo ships. But again, we can do it, but how effective is that system? Is it going to be able to operate and fight the way we need a ship to? And I think that if we can prove that an autonomous vessel can employ chaff, which is relatively easy to do, then we can get to the point of, okay, here's the lessons learned from that. And then it be a quicker development cycle to then get it to the point of an autonomous vessel with a vertical launch cell being able to launch an SM6 or an SM2. And that's just kind of how I think we should approach it. But again, I'm not in charge of any of the programs and I'm not in charge of the purse
1: strings. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, this idea of kind of like go go for the lower hanging fruit. Some of this technology, you know, like you're saying put a chaff launcher on a smaller USV should should really not be that difficult. Like let's do that. Get it out to the fleet and then kind of step up from there instead of trying to build the I don't know, underwater unmanned F35 and get everything perfect and before we get it out there. So I, I think that's a, it's a good point and a point well taken, and and especially when you look at, you know, the USVs that we started with talking about, and in the Black Sea and and now in the Red Sea, and they're simple. I mean, I you know I'm kind of struck by the idea of are these the videos coming out of Ukraine, and these look I mean kind of like a a jet ski with a with a warhead on it, right? I mean, it it should be I would think theoretically less complicated than the uh, aerial the UAS stuff that we see at the same time, even if the, the the size is different. Are there specific obstacles that you see to kind of greater integration of uh, USVs into the fleet besides, you know, the kind of uh, typical ones that we would expect, like, okay, not enough money for development or programs are just kind of slow to, to mature and in, in the regular acquisition or bureaucratic hurdles in, in acquisition programs within the DOD? The one obstacle
0: that I would say there is the attraction to pursue the technological silver bullet in saying that with Zumwalt and those other programs, we tried to achieve something at a scope and at a scale right out of the gates. And because we will have this capability that will give us a competitive advantage. The reality is, you know, the old system was in the 80s. If you came up with, you know, some technological advancement, it was years before the next competitor could match that technological breakthrough. Like one of the reasons we were so successful in Iraq in the 90s with Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm was just the fact that we had night vision scopes on our Abrams tanks and it allowed us – to just absolutely throttle uh, the Iraqi army, which at the time was, I think, the fifth largest in the world. And so it was years, but now almost every military out there has similar equipment on their tanks. And so you see like advances in technology come, but before you know it, it's weeks or days now. Until a competitor is able to come up with their own similar platform or in technological espionage, reverse engineer it. So I think that the in the balance of capacity and capability, sometimes we don't need to go to the capability because it's going to require a massive investment. And the competitive advantage we will gain will not be long enough to really – achieve and realize the return on investment from a uh, peer competition standpoint. And that's just kind of how I look at it is the biggest obstacle to us developing and integrating is going to be wanting something that can do a lot right away and not finding a way to economically reduce risks that are posed to our force or economically hold-at-risk enemy forces.
1: Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good type of acquisitions. Do you have any sense or or kind of gut about where perhaps this technology might be heading uh, among our Adversaries, or you know, in in Ukraine or places other than the U.S. Navy. I mean, do you think that this see a greater proliferation of of these types of systems, or that they're going to go a, a particular way into development?
0: I absolutely think that we're going to see a wider proliferation, and that we'll probably see it realized in the Red Sea. So I'm interested in the next weeks and months to see what level of sophistication and uh, what level of capacity the Houthis wind up achieving uh, with suicide unmanned surface vessels. One, we know that they're being supported by nation states that have money, have R&D, but I'd be curious to see it there because that's also kind of a – You know, that's their task force, 59, testing out these hypotheses and and getting real world action. And then, you know, how can Iran, how can Russia, how can China then build that into their own doctrine and capabilities in order to hold at risk? Because like we said, we've seen a non-nation state actor with relatively simple technology force over 90 percent of the world's maritime commerce through that area of the world to go another route and so think with the uh, capacity of manufacturing that say the people's republic of china could do with this and their ability to rapidly produce uh, modern warships think of their ability to rapidly produce waves upon waves of unsophisticated inexpensive lethal unmanned surface vessels. And again, you only have to have one more than I can shoot in order for it to be effective.
1: That's kind of a sobering thought. But I think that's about all uh, that we're going to have time for today. So I'd like to thank my guest, Commander Michael Knickerbocker, for joining us today to talk about his uh, recent essay about USVs, Written in Black and Red, Asymmetric Threats in Affordable Unmanned Vessels. Michael, where, if anywhere, can our listeners find you online, and what are you working on next?
0: So um, I am on X, the artist formerly known as Twitter, at the Salty Strategist, Uh, but I am easiest to find on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active uh, from a professional standpoint, and I'm spending more time looking into uh, operational energy needs and sustainability. Uh, How do we able to be self-sustainable to fight when logistical uh, chains are challenged by a peer competitor. So that's kind of where I'm heading my research in now to continue to write. Awesome.
1: Thanks again for joining us and to the listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.